This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on 1 Samuel called Waiting for the Kingdom. Listen to the word of the Lord in 1 Samuel chapter 13. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. I should mention, by the way, your version might say something completely different. And the fact is, the Hebrew text is corrupted somewhere, and we have no idea what the actual numbers are. But that doesn't affect any critical doctrine. shouldn't rock anyone's faith. So let's carry on. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel. And a thousand were with Jonathan at Gibeah and Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Gibeah, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him, were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah and Benjamin and Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. Saul and his son Jonathan and the men with them were staying in Gibeah and Benjamin while the Philistines camped at Michmash. Raiding parties went out from the Philistine camp in three detachments. One turned towards Ophrah in the vicinity of Shual, another towards Beth-horon, and the third toward the borderland overlooking the valley of Zeboim facing the wilderness. Not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plow points, mattocks, axes, and sickles sharpened. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for sharpening plow points and mattocks and a third of a shekel for sharpening forks and axes and for re- and for repointing goads. So on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. This is a story about 
a failure to wait on God, a failure that had devastating consequences for Saul and his kingdom. Waiting, perhaps, is one of the hardest things that human beings can do. Saul, in fact, did very well when he was filled with the Spirit of God and ripped those oxen apart and launched an attack on King Nahash on the Ammonites a couple chapters ago. But it's a lot harder to expect great things from God than it is to attempt great things for God. Waiting is difficult. No one enjoys waiting. A number of years ago, GQ magazine, not a magazine I'm generally in the habit of reading, wrote an article called The 15-Year Layover. And it was about an Iranian man named named Mirhan Karimi Nasseri, who spent 18 years, in fact, three years after the article was written, in Terminal 1 in Charles de Gaulle Airport from 1988 to 2006. His story is a little murky. He seems to have been a refugee from Iran. He became confused later on and couldn't quite remember his story. But somehow he was a refugee. He had taken the ferry to Britain. And on the ferry, he had made the the fatal mistake of mailing all his documents back to the High Commissioner for Refugees in Brussels. And so he arrived in the UK without papers. He sort of fell into this stateless, no-man's-land. And after different attempts to uh, enter the UK, he ended up stuck in the Charles de Gaulle Airport for 18 years. And many of you may be familiar with the movie The Terminal, which is quite a lovely, feel-good movie. His story is not quite so happy. He spent 18 years in this terminal. He lived on a red bench surrounded by many suitcases, FedEx boxes, McDonald's coupons, beverage containers right next to a CD, a CD shop. He, you could, any, any visitor could go and find this gentleman. He was balding on top. He had tufts of white hair sticking out of the side of his head and four gold teeth. And the journalist, um, Matthew, Michael Paternity, who interviewed him, described him as a man who, no matter how little you had accomplished in your day, this man had accomplished less. Simply waiting. He was a man, Paternity wrote, a man with no discernible narrative arc in his life. A life so meaningless, the author felt, that surely it must be meaningful, some kind of commentary on our modern condition. And he tried to interview uh, this gentleman who insisted on going by the name Sir Alfred. And part of his problem getting out of the airport is that he refused to sign documents by his birth name. He um, became very confused and somewhat deluded. And he would sit across from you at the table, stroking his bald head or slowly working his jaw. And he would speak for a few moments. And then he would just sit there with this thousand-yard gaze across the terminal. Waiting is hard, and it does things to our minds, and it does things to our souls. And here Saul has the deeper spiritual challenge of waiting on God. Saul is the new king of Israel, and a couple chapters ago, as I mentioned, he had dealt with Israel's army on the one side, the Ammonites towards the east. And now his attention must turn to Israel's greater and more powerful enemy, the Philistines, this more technologically advanced society that lives down on the coast and that are dominating and oppressing the land of Israel. And in chapter 10, when Samuel had secretly anointed Saul as king, 
He had been given a mission to do whatever God put into your hands to do. And it was clearly a thinly veiled order to attack the Philistine garrison at the first opportunity. And then when that happens, he was told, wait for me, Samuel, for seven days at Gilgal until I come to offer you the burnt offering, to offer the burnt offering and the fellowship offering. But somehow Saul never acted. And the plan was delayed, it seems, for several years, but better late than never at least. And Saul begins to gather an army to do something. He takes... 2,000 men, and he advances to the west on the north side of this wadi, this dried-up riverbed in the gorge, in the gulch, and his son Jonathan takes 1,000 men to advance on the left hand, the south side of the gorge. But it's not Saul, in the end, who launches the attack. Tellingly, it's not Saul, it's Jonathan, who boldly attacks with his smaller unit of men, and he attacks this Philistine outpost at Geba. Perhaps he assassinated the commander. It's a little vague as to what happened. But this action stirs up huge trouble. It generates a massive reaction from the Philistines. When I was a boy, we had a broken down chicken shed in our backyard. And in that shed, there was a wasp's nest. And one of the exciting little games my brother and I would play would be to chuck rocks through the, win- through the window and then run as fast as we could. Definitely a wise game, wiser game to play if your brother is younger rather than older. And this is this huge reaction that Jonathan provokes. It's like he's stuck a stick into a hornet's nest, and he becomes, and Israel becomes a stench in the nostrils of the Philistines. Extremely obnoxious. They're enraged that these backwards farmers, these slave subjects of theirs, have dared to Um, assault this Philistine outpost, and it creates this huge reaction. First of all, it creates a reaction with Israel because Saul has the trumpet, the ram's horn blown, the alarm siren sounds, and all the Hebrews hear that this outpost has been attacked, and the army begins to assemble. But there's a much greater army assembling to the west as the Philistines gather their forces. 3,000 chariots, we're told, which is a huge number. Your translation might say 30,000, which is highly implausible. Even 3,000 is a huge army because Solomon, we're told in 1 Kings, only had 1,400 chariots. So here are the Philistines with this massive army of chariots. They seem to have two charioteers per chariot, plus soldiers, foot soldiers, numbering as many as the sands on the seashores. And the Israelites freak out when this army arrives. It's really telling, I think, that the size of the army is described with these words, the sand on the seashore, which, if your memory has been formed by the Bible, you think back to the book of Genesis, that's what God promised Abraham, his descendants would be as numerous as. And now here's an anti-Israel, and any faithful Israelite should have thought to himself, wait a second, God has told us we are going to be more numerous than the sand on the seashore. And faith should have risen as they remembered the promise of God, but there's no faith when this horde of enemies arrive and the Israelites freak out. Some of them hide in holes in the mountains, in caves, in cisterns, in thickets. Others, the whole stream of refugees pulling their baggage behind them crosses the Jordan River in hope of some kind of safety. And their situation is really desperate. 
because they're not only outnumbered, they are horribly overmatched in terms of equipment. The author tells us there's no blacksmiths in Israel. They have no metal weapons. The only people who have swords and spears are Samuel, or are, are Saul and his son Jonathan. That's, that's their inventory. Two swords and two spears. Everyone else must satisfy themselves with wooden clubs, with stones, with slings, maybe a rake or a shovel. That's all they've got to work with. They are unarmed. They're outnumbered. And as they're sitting there on their side of the gorge, looking across at the Philistines, they see the Philistines sending raiding parties east, north, and west to secure their own supply lines, to cut off any support that might come from the north, and quite possibly to circle around to the side and come up behind Saul and his tiny army. This is a desperate situation, and the few soldiers who follow Saul are quaking with fear. He has a very blurry army behind him because everyone is sweating and shaking at the horrible death that they certainly are about to experience. And isn't it amazing that Israel in their sin had demanded a king to deliver them from their enemies, and now they have a king, and it turns out that his presence brings them no security at all. They're shaking with fear. And Saul, to his credit, has not forgotten Samuel's instructions from a year or two ago. He's determined to carry out this command he's received from the prophet, this command from God, to patiently wait for seven days at Gilgal until Samuel appears to offer the sacrifices. The sand must have run very slowly through the hourglass as Saul waited and waited and waited. And now he's beginning to hemorrhage troops. His shaky, frightened army begins melting away, and every morning, hundreds of men have disappeared from the camp. In fact, Saul's army of 3,000 men goes down to 600 by the time the week is over. That's an 80% desertion rate. Not good. And Saul is feeling the pressure to act, the pressure to lead, the pressure to take command. Because to wait and do nothing makes leaders look weak and indecisive. The last thing you want to say to the people behind you is, I honestly don't know what's going to happen next. I have no plan and I have no vision. That's when the desertions start to happen and leaders begin to feel the pressure to say anything, to do anything, to strike out in any direction, to maintain the momentum and to keep people's trust going in them. Waiting is hard for Saul. It's wonderful to sing songs about waiting on the Lord in Sunday school, but this ain't Sunday school, folks. They're surrounded by a murderous enemy. They can imagine the iron weapons sinking into their own soft underbellies, and something, something has to be done. Saul, to his credit, holds out for seven days. And there were many kings of Israel who followed him who wouldn't even have waited a single day. Saul waits for those seven days, looking at his watch the whole time. And the seventh day comes, and Saul feels 
you know what? I've, I've given Samuel his chance. I mean, where on earth is this guy? It's a national emergency here. The king that he has anointed is about to be wiped out. The whole army is going to be destroyed. The Philistines are going to break our backs. And Samuel has vanished. If ever we needed a prophet to come and help us, if ever we needed a word from the Lord, if ever we needed a priest to offer a sacrifice for us, surely it would be now. But Samuel is taking his sweet old time to appear. Has he had some kind of accident? I mean, he is an old gentleman. Perhaps his memory is going. Samuel is not showing up. And I've given God his chance. I have, I feel kept to the letter of the instructions. I've given God ample opportunity to show up day after day after day, a whole week, and nothing has happened. So as everyone would have advised Saul, every general in history would have advised Saul, buddy, you need to do something. You need to take some action. So Saul says, look, guys, okay, the time, time is up. Let's bring the sacrifices, get them ready, and we are going to perform the ritual action to gain the favor of God. Like every ancient person would have viewed a battle, you need to lock in the favor of your nation's deity to make sure that he's fighting on your side when you finally join battle. And so I did my best to keep this strange requirement Samuel gave me. I did my part. He hasn't shown up. And now since he's not here, I am going to perform this ritual action. I'm going to check this box as surely Samuel and God would have wanted me to do so that we can proceed into battle with the few forces that we have left. And so Saul offers the burnt offering. And before he can offer the second peace offering, lo and behold, Samuel shows up. And Saul hastens to greet the prophet. He gives him expressions of respect and welcome, but Samuel has no time for politeness or social niceties. He asks one terse, blunt question. What have you done? What have you done, Saul? And Saul's response is quite loquacious, quite wordy. He's uh, very defensive. He has plenty of good reasons for his actions. He blames the people for melting away. He blames Samuel for not showing up when he should have. And he blames the Philistines for assembling and putting him into this position. Look, Samuel, I am facing circumstances beyond my control. And in the end, I compelled myself, I forced myself to offer this sacrifice to win the favor of God. It's an utterly plausible explanation like all of our rationalizations, for disobeying God. Utterly plausible. So plausible, in fact, that many commentators, surprisingly many commentators, side completely with Saul in this story. One of them, in fact, describes Samuel as a blithering idiot for condemning Saul. Not words one normally reads in biblical commentaries. Saul, we feel sympathy with Saul because he's so much like us, isn't he? And here Samuel shows up, he hears Saul's explanation, his rationalization, and Samuel says, Saul, you have done a foolish, you have acted very foolishly. You disobeyed the command of the Lord. You were told to wait for seven days until I appeared to offer 
the sacrifice, but you were unable to wait. And the punishment is severe because Saul is told his kingdom is not going to endure. There's not going to be a dynasty that Saul gets to be the head of. His son, Jonathan, who is one of the most shining characters in the Old Testament, will never have the opportunity to sit on the throne. Saul's name is not going to endure because God has determined that this man is not worthy of being the king of Israel. And in fact, Samuel tells Saul, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart to lead my people. Saul is not that man. Why is Samuel so harsh? Yeah, Saul was unable to wait, but that's hardly the worst sin in the Old Testament. Looking at David himself, it seems like David's transgressions are far greater. Committing adultery with Bathsheba, having her husband murdered. Why does David get to be the man after God's own heart? When Saul, who seems to be doing his best, is outside the favor of God. And there are those who believe that in this chapter we see the dark side of God, that God is arbitrary and unfair and at times even demonic. Sometimes God just likes some people and hates others. And the fact, the whole thing, some people say, is a setup on Saul. He never wanted the kingship. God placed him in this position only to drag him down. And Saul is this doomed, tragic figure who's never able to get on the right side of God. But in fact, Saul shows himself to be a man, despite his outward respect for religion, his recognition of the need for offerings and sacrifices. Saul is a man who is not devoted to God at the very core of his being. The center of Saul's heart is strangely empty. David, for all his faults, is a man who loves God and is passionate about seeking him. And although Saul tries to check the boxes, we never get the feeling that Saul is a man hungry for the presence of God. Saul is attempting to offer the burnt offering. And you can read about that offering in Leviticus chapter 1. And of the five different offerings that the Israelites were commanded to offer, this was the one offering that was entirely consumed on the altar. Nothing was reserved for the priests or the people to eat. Hence, the burnt offering, the whole thing, goes up in flames. And this sacrifice of atonement seems to have been a representation of the worshipers offering their entire selves to God without reserve. And Saul is only acting out the symbol, but the inner reality of worship is utterly missing from his heart. And for him, worship is just a set of outward technicalities, a procedure to get a result, not passion. God. And the irony is that Saul is attempting to win favor from God through an act of disobedience. And we see Saul's spiritual dullness and confusion and unawareness of what the heart of God is really like. What Samuel emphasizes is that Saul is a man who does not obey the commands of the Lord. And that word command is repeated four times in what Samuel says. Saul will not obey the command of God. It's a question of the authority structure in Israel. What will our king be like? Is he a king who is going to rule under God or a king who is going to rule instead of God? And deep down, 
and this will emerge in Saul's life, he is a man who wants to act autonomously. He doesn't want God telling him what to do through Samuel. Saul wants to do his own thing. And that disobedience of Saul really arises out of unbelief, which comes from fear. There's a crisis, which leads to doubt, which leads to disobedience. Bill Arnold describes it as the insecurity and self-doubt arising from a total confidence in God. Saul does not entirely rely on God. And because of his lack of faith, he disobeys. His resources are melting away, time is running out, and Saul is willing to trust God to a degree, but not all the way, and that leads him into disobedience. Saul has one eye on God, but the other eye is on his army. And this is Saul's great mistake. And it's so foolish too. You know, if Saul had been the one with the 3,000 chariots and the 6,000 horsemen and the army as numerous as the sand on the sea, well, in that situation, we would all understand Saul trusting in his huge, mighty army. But the people who are with Saul are so small in number so deeply demoralized, so uh, lacking in equipment and weaponry, that to put his trust in this tiny army is an act of complete foolishness. In fact, had Saul been a man of faith, the small army would have been a gift to him to remind him to put his trust in God alone. There are tragic echoes in this story to the tale of Gideon in Judges chapter 7. The ram's horn being blown, the numbers of troops, the armies melting away, people quaking with fear. Of course, in Gideon's story, God tells him, you've got 32,000 men. In fact, you have too many men with you. Let's start whittling down this army so that you're never tempted to say, it was my great army that delivered me. It was the power of God alone. And Gideon's army, of course, goes down to 300 men. And with that tiny band of soldiers, they destroy the Midianite army. It's an invitation to faith, to Saul. And what a hero Saul would have been had he gathered his troops and said, you know what, boys, there's only 600 of us today, but God is with us. God is with us. And therefore, there's no need for us to be afraid of the Philistines. God has promised to come to our help. And he, however, in some way, God is going to show up and rescue us from our enemies. Some trust in chariots and horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. But it's not Saul who's going to say those words. That's Psalm 20, verse 7. It's the king after Saul, for all his faults, who has that expression of faith in God. I think we all instinctively feel sympathy for Saul because he's so much like us, isn't he? And in judging Saul, we're judging our own lack of faith because we too find it incredibly difficult to wait on the Lord, to stand still and do nothing but fix our eyes. And of course, Real life is not Sunday school either. There's always some urgent crisis or chronic long-standing problem, whether it's money or relationships 
our health, there's always a very rational excuse not to completely trust in God. We've got to use the resources we've been given. Yes, we've given God his chance. We have waited. We have prayed for seven days or seven months or seven years. We have given God his chance, but he's missing in action. And so now we need to take things into our own hands. The resources of the flesh are melting away fast, and we need to act quickly before they're gone forever. Hey, I'm willing to check the boxes. I'm willing to show up every Sunday and do the spiritual procedure. But in the end, I'm the one who needs to act. But what about our own hearts? Do we have that inner obedience to God? Have we truly offered ourselves up wholly and unreservedly on the altar before the Lord? Or is there some reserve we're willing to go so far, but not all the way? We have faith, but not faith without doubting. There is hope, but not hope without wavering. And there is obedience, but it's not obedience without reserve or hesitation. We have conditions. Very reasonable conditions. And we have timelines. Very reasonable timelines, we think. But what we excuse as a minor offense, very understandable to everyone around us, grieves the heart of God and reveals an emptiness and perhaps an inner rebellion against his lordship in our lives. Crisis, doubt, disobedience, a pattern ever since Adam and Eve in the garden. The Holy Spirit is calling us to wait on God, not only to attempt great things for God, but to stand still and expect great things from God. Waiting is difficult because it's an expression of my total helplessness. We only wait when all other options have been exhausted. There is literally nothing I can do now but wait. I cannot solve this problem. I cannot fix this situation. I've worked myself into a corner. And the only way that I can possibly be rescued if, is if someone shows up from the outside to do it for me. And this childlike faith This waiting on God is at the very heart of the Christian faith. Waiting on God. Saul was commanded to wait on God, and he failed that test, just like Adam had done before him, and just like everyone has done after him, including you and me. We fail the test of waiting on God time and time again. And we have forfeited the kingdom long ago, forfeited the kingdom. Our only hope is in the true king that God has appointed, the man after his own heart, someone whose inner being is completely aligned with the inner being of God. The son of Jesse is a shadow, but David is a very faded and flawed and partial shadow of this true king because it's only the son of Mary, Jesus of Nazareth, 
who has a heart completely after the hearts of God. It is striking when you read the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, the overriding concern of Jesus during his life on earth was to obey the will of his Father. I only do what I see my Father doing. And his whole life and ministry is in total alignment with the will of his Father. And Jesus alone is the man who trusts without doubting and who hopes without wavering and who offers himself without reservation. Let's allow our minds to go to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is agonizing in prayer before the Father. The powers of evil are closing in. His enemies are pressing towards him. And Jesus is losing his own followers. They are melting away. And on his knees, he begs that the cup be taken from him. But he also prays, not my will, Father, but your will be done. And then he offers, Jesus offers his own body, not as a mere symbol. He offers himself as a whole offering, a burnt offering, consumed completely on the cross for his followers. Brothers and sisters, if you believe in Jesus, you are not on probation. Your future is not hinging on how perfectly you keep the command of God or how persistently you are able to wait on him. Because if it does, we're all, our hope and our confidence is this, that God is for us because of Jesus. God is for you because of Jesus. And pause and let that sink into your soul. God is for me. And the only way you can possibly hope, the only way you can hold out for year after year, the only way you can rely on God with your entire being is if you know deep down God is for me. There's no perfect waiting without perfect confidence in God's favor towards me. Not by any sacrifice I offer to earn that favor, but by a sacrifice that was offered by Jesus Christ. We can wait because we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. Not mere wishful thinking or summoning up my own spiritual energies. My hope is secure because he himself is my hope. Let's bow our heads and ask God for the grace to fully entrust ourselves to Jesus as we wait for him. Father God, we come before you as your dearly beloved children. You know our unbelief, our impatience, our quickness to forget you and rely instead on the instruments of the flesh. Forgive us, we pray, for the sake of your son. And we renounce afresh our confidence in those things and we lay our whole weight on Jesus, the Lamb of God, our true King, the King after your heart. And Father, by your Holy Spirit, form us more and more into the image of this, our King, so that we can be men and women and children of faith and obedience who experience your presence and your victory over all of our enemies. Our hope is in you, Lord, and we are waiting for you more than watchmen wait for the morning more than the watchmen wait for the morning. We wait for you, God. And we trust that those who wait on you will never be put. We pray this in the name of Jesus.
your beloved Son. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.